We're going to be talking about eschatology. Don't I sound erudite? <laughs> eschatology and all that good stuff. I think what that means is the last days and the end times and all that kind of good stuff. And there are many differing views uh, concerning that. But nearly all evangelical Christians agree in three things. One, they agree that Jesus is coming again. Number two, they agree that He will come this time as judge and not as Savior. And number three, they agree that nobody knows when it's going to happen except God Himself. Now, on those three things, most people agree. What we'll be covering tonight is what I believe the weight of the Scripture teaches. Now, if when Jesus comes, He doesn't fit my theology, I have a decision I've already made. I'm going to join Him. <laughs> but there's some things that you need to decide on the basis of the weight of Scripture. For instance, the matter of eternal security versus the fact that you can be saved today and lost tomorrow. Obviously, there's an argument on both sides from the Scripture. I can make a good argument on either side. But the weight of the Scripture, I believe, teaches eternal security. Same thing is true with some other issues. For instance, the issue of the free will of man versus the Reformed doctrine of election. Well, I can make a pretty good argument on either side of that case, but it seems to me the weight of the Scripture is on the side of the free will of man. And so it is in the matter of eschatology or the end times. And before we go further, let's pray, shall we? And Father, again tonight, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts might be acceptable in your sight for Jesus' sake. Amen. The foundation of all prophecy is the sovereignty of God. God is a God of law and order. The 14th chapter of the book of Isaiah and the 24th verse in the Living Bi Amplified Bible, it says this, The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely as I have thought and planned, so shall it come to pass, and as I have purposed, so shall it stand. Further on that same chapter, down about the 27th verse, it says, For the Lord of hosts has made his plan. Who can unmake it? The outstretched hand is his hand. Who can hold it back? Further, God is sovereign in the affairs of nations. In Acts 17, 26, the Bible says, He created all the people of the world from one man, Adam, and scattered the nations across the face of the earth. He decided beforehand which should rise and fall and when. And he determined their boundaries. Does that sound to you like God is in control of the affairs of nations? He decided which one should rise, which one should fall, when it should take place, and what the limit of its geographical boundaries would be. The 12th chapter of the book of Job, in the 23rd verse, God is speaking. He said, I raise up a nation and, and destroy it. I make it great and then reduce it to nothing. Thirdly, God is sovereign as far as power is concerned. Our God is an all-powerful God. In the fourth chapter of the book of Daniel, the 35th verse, it says, And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will among the inhabitants of earth and the army of heaven, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said, All power is given to me in heaven and in earth. In Psalm 115, 3, the Bible says, But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. More than that, God is sovereign in the lives of individuals who are committed to Him. In the 23rd chapter of the book of Job, verses 13 and 14, Job says this, But he is in one mind, and who can turn him? And whatsoever his soul desireth, even that he doeth. He performeth a thing that is appointed for me, and many such things 
are with him. More than that, God is sovereign in human history. The first chapter of the book of Ephesians, verses 9 and 10, the Bible says that God has allowed us to know the secret of his plan, and it is this. He purposed in his sovereign will that all human history will be consummated in Christ, that everything that exists in heaven and in earth will find its perfection and fulfillment in him. The last word in history, beloved, will not be spoken by the disciples of Karl Marx. The last word in history will be spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the last word in history. I hope that you've had time to take a look at the Bible map. Is there anybody here who did not get one last night? Could I see your hand? And John, you might, uh, you might take care of that if you could. John, are you here tonight? Hello, John. Do you have any of these? There's none left. Well, that's like the uh, five wise and five foolish virgins. <clears throat> we ran out of oil. I think, uh, John, that I may have a half a dozen or so uh, back at the motel. For those of you who did not get one, um, John will uh, have them here for you in the morning, won't you, John? <laughs> They'll be out at the information desk, uh, for those of you who didn't get one. I hope you've had a chance to look it over. Uh, this particular Bible map, God's Plan of the Ages, at least divides what God has done from eternity past and what he plans to do in eternity future into bite-sized pieces that we can understand. I think you can study uh, from uh, the, the handout uh, what's happened in the past. It doesn't take much to figure out. Incidentally, how do we get this down? Is there some secret thing? Do I pull this? Is that it? If I pull that, what's going to happen? <laughs> Stand clear. Like I said, stand clear. Well, there's a little bigger, a little bigger picture of the same thing that you have. And as far as the Bible map is concerned, we are now at the stage of the age of grace. We are in number six, the age of grace. We're on this side of the cross. Now let's talk a little about future events. What's going to happen? The next event in God's great timetable will be the rapture of the saved. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17, the Bible says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the air, to meet the Lord in the clouds, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort ye one another with these sayings. The Bible says that one of these days, the, uh, the angel of God, Gabriel, is going to blow his, blow his trumpet. Jesus Christ is going to appear in the air. And when he does, all of those who have died in Christ and all of us who remain at that time will be caught up together with them in the air. And so, the Bible says, we will ever be with the Lord. That's going to be a rather surprising day. I saw a bumper sticker in our country not long ago that I thought was pretty interesting. Do you have bumper stickers here? Yes. A bumper sticker that said, uh, in case of the rapture, this vehicle will be unattended. <laughs> Think of what's going to happen when uh, the great airliners who are traversing the airspace worldwide, suddenly some of them show up with the pilot gone. Think what's going to happen in Auckland, New Zealand, in the, in the midst of the traffic jam, when suddenly a bunch of the drivers are gone. And there they are. 
Or think what's going to happen in the power plants when suddenly the engineers disappear. Boy, what a day that's going to be. The second great event on God's calendar beyond the rapture is the return or regathering of the Jews in Israel. In Ezekiel 36, starting with verse 20 and through 24, it says this, But when they were scattered out among the nations, they were a blight upon thy holy name, because the nation said, These are the people of God. I am concerned about my reputation that was ruined by my people throughout the world, God is saying. Therefore, say to the people of Israel, The Lord God says, I am bringing you back again. Not because you deserve it. I am doing it to protect my holy name which you have tarnished among the nations. I will honor my great name that you have defiled. The people of the world will know that I am the Lord. I will be honored before their eyes by delivering you from exile among them. For I will bring you back home again into the land of Israel. The third thing that's going to happen in God's timetable beyond that is the great tribulation. Now we won't be here. Thank God for that. Those of us who know Jesus in a personal way. But I think we ought to know what's going to happen because what's going to happen during the tribulation must be gotten ready for. When we're gone, beloved, it's on. We can look around and see what's happening in the world as far as the governments are concerned. We can see what's happening in the church and we can see what, what is happening in the nation of Israel and have some idea of where we are on God's timetable as, as far as when these things may well happen. The first thing that will happen during the tribulation is that the world will be divided into four spheres of influence. The northern kingdom, pointed out in Ezekiel, the 38th and 39th chapter, Daniel 11, verses 40 and 45, Joel 2.20, they are called Gog, Cush, Put, and Gomer. Gog is Russia. I believe Cush to be the Arabs and the black Africans. I believe Gomer to be the eastern European bloc and Put to be Libya and Yemen. These people are going to be one bloc, one power structure of nations at the beginning of the tribulation times. The second power structure will be Israel, the nation of Israel. The third will be the ten-nation confederacy, pointed out in Daniel 7, 1 through 20, Revelation 13, 1 through 3. It will have its headquarters in Rome. It will have its, uh, it'll be basically the boundaries will be the same as the old Roman Empire. It will have a dictator who will run the ten-nation confederacy. There are people today who believe that the common market, the EEC, is the forerunner of the ten-nation confederacy. The fourth power structure will be the kings of the east. They're pointed out in Revelation, the 16th chapter, verses 12 through 16. The Greek word used there actually means the kings of the rising sun. And many people believe that the kings of the east will be both China and Japan together. These are the four power structures that will be politically operative at the beginning of the tribulation period. Then the dictator of the ten-nation confederacy which will have its headquarters in Rome, will make a treaty with the Jews and he'll promise them basically two things. One, protection. Number two, that they can reinstitute their religious worship the, the, the way they want to. Therefore, daily sacrifice will be reinstituted in the temple so the ten-nation confederacy and the Jews are together. Then the world church, which may be a outgrowth of the world council of churches, I don't know, that great ecumenical movement, finally comes together and there is a one World Great Church, spoken of as the great whore or the great harlot of Babylon. You'll find that in Revelation 17 and in Isaiah 47. The dictator will make peace with the world church, and because of his strength, and because of his political ability, and because the ecological situation has become so bad, the population explosion has become so acute, that so critical has the depletion of natural resources become, 
that he is able, by the strength of his personality and political uh, sagacity, to put together the whole world under his rule and become, at that point, the world dictator. He says everybody's going to have a chicken in the pot, and they believe him. And they, he says to him, in effect, if you'll just put me in charge, I'll bring order out of this chaos that we find in the world today. He runs the whole show, and the other three power structures have joined him. Now, halfway through the tribulation, that is three and a half years, the tribulation period is seven years, the leader, who the Bible calls the Antichrist, says to the people, now you may not realize it, but actually I'm God, and therefore I should be worshipped. He breaks his treaty with the Jews, he sets himself up in the temple as God, and demands that people worship him. Then he destroys the one world church, Revelation 18, verses 2 and 3. Then he has the beast, which is his lieutenant, to build an image to himself, which they set up in the, in the temple in Jerusalem. He leaves the lieutenant in charge, and he goes back to Rome. At that point, the beast says, if you're going to buy or sell or trade in the world, you must have the mark of the beast. And therefore, people begin to have the mark of the beast either on their hand or on their forehead. Revelation 13, verses 11 through 18. Meanwhile, two witnesses have sprung up in Jerusalem. There's a difference of opinion as to who these two witnesses might be. Some people think they're Moses and Enoch. Some think it's Moses and Elijah. Others think it may be Enoch and Elijah because they're the only two who never really died. They were translated. But anyway, whoever they are, they are God's witnesses and they appear in Jerusalem. Revelation 11, 1 through 6. And they begin to tell the people, you should be worshiping God, the only true God. The people try to kill these two witnesses, but they can't kill them. They refuse to die. During that three and a half year period, the last half of the seven years of tribulation, these witnesses continue to preach to the people. Then there are three sets of seven things that happen in the world. There are seven seals that are opened in heaven. There are seven angels that blow seven trumpets. There are seven judgments or plagues that come upon the earth. The order in which they happen is not clear, but they do occur in the last three and a half years of the tribulation. And the people on earth basically blame the two witnesses for all these problems. You can understand why they want to kill them. Let's take a look quickly at these three types of disasters that come. First of all, the seven seals. Here's what happens on earth. This is Revelation, the sixth chapter. The first seal is opened. The white horse appears, which is the Antichrist. He is the conqueror. The second seal is opened. The red horse appears, means that peace is destroyed upon the earth, that war begins to triumph. The third seal is open. The black horse, which is famine, makes his appearance. The fourth seal is open. The horse of death and one-fourth of all humanity are killed. The fifth seal is open, and they see the souls of those who were killed for the testimony of Jesus around the throne of God. The sixth seal is open, and the great earthquake comes upon the earth. Celestial chaos takes place. The sun and the moon and the stars get fouled up. Every mountain in the world is leveled. And every island in the sea sinks into oblivion. At that point, all mankind tries to hide. But many find there's no place to go. The seventh seal is open. It says there's a great silence in heaven for the space of a half hour. I believe that seventh seal is when Jesus comes back in the millennium. And then the seven trumpets. Do you all understand what I'm saying? Are you out there? Huh? Are you there? Let, let me see. You are there? I see. Shocking, isn't it? Am I troubling you? Well, you know, I'm supposed to. 
the seven trumpets. Revelation 8, 9, 10, and 11, those four chapters, the first angel blows his trumpet, and hail and fire and blood come upon the earth, kills one-third of all mankind that's left, burned up. The second angel blows his trumpet, and a burning mountain is cast into the sea. One-third of all the life in the sea dies, and one-third of all the ships on the sea sink. The fourth angel blows his, the third angel blows his trumpet, and a star from heaven falls, the name of the star is Wormwood, Bitterness. And one-third of all the rivers and the lakes in the world are polluted and poisoned. The fourth angel blows his trumpet. One-third of the stars and one-third of the sun disappears. The fifth angel blows his trumpet. The bottomless pit is open, and out of the bottomless pit come hordes of locusts, which sting like scorpions. They are given power over men for five months to torture men but not to kill them. At this point, men try to die. They jump into the ocean, but instead of sinking, they float. They leap off of buildings, but they float to the ground instead of hitting hard. They try and shoot themselves, and they cannot die. They try, they try everything they can, and they cannot die because the locusts have the power over them for five months, torturing all the people of the world. Then the sixth angel blows his trumpet, and 200 million demon-possessed cavalrymen begin to run through the earth. I believe they're the kings of the east. Here they come, killing one-third of all mankind that is remaining. The seventh angel blows his trumpet. And a voice from heaven says in Revelation 11:15, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, which is the millennium when Jesus Christ returns and reigns for a thousand years. Now the seven judgments. There are seven judgments or seven plagues in Revelation 16. Basically, here's what they are. The first judgment, boils spring up on all the people in the world who've accepted the mark of the beast. The second judgment, all the seas in the entire world die just like the dead sea is dead. The third judgment, all the rivers of water die in the entire world. The fourth judgment, something happens to the axis of the earth and something happens to the sun. And the sun's heat becomes unbearable and the people of earth are scorched with the rays of the sun. The fifth judgment, darkness falls. The people of of the world are going to be in such anguish and pain that the Bible says they will gnaw their tongues because they're in pain and anguish. The sixth judgment, the Euphrates River dries up and the kings of the east come and cross it. The seventh judgment, great hailstones weighing more than a hundred pounds apiece begin to fall from the sky. It's the great wind-up battle, the battle of Armageddon. And this gives you some idea of what's going to be happening during the last three and a half years of the tribulation. The people remaining keep trying to kill the two witnesses, and finally they succeed. The eleventh chapter of Revelation, verses 7 through 12. By satellite, worldwide television, shows the two witnesses' bodies lying out in Jerusalem. They have a worldwide celebration. People begin to live it up and send gifts to one another because the witnesses are dead, finally. They lie out there in Jerusalem for three days. Then while they have their TV cameras still trained on them, somebody notices that one of them's eyelash moves just a little. And then as they watch closely, horrified, the other one's finger begins to move. And suddenly they come back to life. And the world stands with bated breath. And the voice comes down from heaven, which says, Come up hither. And the people of the earth watch as the two witnesses disappear into heaven. The two witnesses are now gone. They're up in heaven. A great earthquake strikes. Everybody's pretty upset. Then Egypt attacks Israel. When Egypt attacks Israel, Russia breaks her tie with the, uh, the dictator, the world dictator, and comes to the aid of Egypt and attacks Israel both by land and by sea. 
Then uh, the big battle gets going about that time. The world dictator gets his troops that he's got left together, brings them over, and he attacks Russia as they are attacking Israel. Then about that time, the, uh, the nuclear warheads enter the picture, and the major cities of the world are nuked. You'll find that in Zechariah, the 14th chapter and the 12th verse. Then the kings of the east come by land from the east over the Middle East, 200 million of them, and attack the ten-nation confederacy. You'll be interested to know, I'm sure, that today China is building a road from China to the Middle East. They're already uh, most nearly through Burma. The Euphrates River dries up so these 200 million cattlemen can cross it. They're engaged in combat. Most of the armed forces of the world are engaged in the, in, in the, in the plains of Megiddo, and the battle of Armageddon is going on, and suddenly Jesus appears. He returns to the Mount of Olives olive in glory. You'll find that in Revelation 19, Revelation 14, and Acts 1, 9 through 12. He destroys the alien armies, sets up his millennial kingdom, and when he comes back, we're going to come with him, beloved. We're going to come, and he's going to set up his kingdom in Jerusalem for a thousand years, and the Bible says we're going to reign with him. There'll be perfect prosperity, perfect peace, perfect joy, and perfect harmony. His headquarters will be Jerusalem. The end of that time, Satan, the Bible says in Revelation 20, verses 7 through 9, is released for a short time. Because he knows his time is short, he'll be very active and very vicious. But God, God, one day after he's been released for a short time, will appear and say, Gentlemen, I have my ring of keys and it's closing time. And he'll wrap it up. And the world as we know it will disappear. Second Peter 3 tells us that the elements will melt with fervent heat and the heavens will, uh, will disappear with a great noise. All the nuclear atomic energy held in check will be uh, released and the earth as we know it and everything in it will be gone. And then the Bible says there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And the great white throne judgment will take place and from that point on we're with Jesus forever in eternity. Well, you might say, what does all this mean? Very interesting, but what does all this mean to me? In First Chronicles twelve thirty-two, the Bible says, And the children of Issachar, which were men that had understanding of the times. We as born-again believers in Christ need to have an understanding of the times in which we live. In the 16th chapter of Matthew, the second and third verse, Jesus said, you are good at reading the weather signs in the skies. Red sky tonight means fair weather tomorrow. Red sky in the morning means foul weather all day. But you can't read the obvious signs of the times. Well, what are the obvious signs of the times? That let us know that the rapture of the church may be very near at hand. People who go around setting dates are foolish. But we can understand the times. And the indications of them. Remember, there are three basic signposts on the road of God's timetable to tell us where we are. They are world governments, the nation of Israel, and the church. Now, the most focal and descriptive passage that we have in the Bible, outside of the book of Revelation, telling us about what's going to happen in those times, is the 24th chapter of the book of Matthew. If you'd like to open your Bibles to Matthew 24... We'll take a look at, in the third verse there, are three questions which are asked. Matthew 24, verse 3. While you're looking it up, Jesus tells the disciples as they walk out of the temple that the time is coming when one stone of the temple will not be left upon another. And the disciples basically ask him three questions. You'll find them there in, in Matthew 24, verse 3. Question number one. When will the temple be destroyed? Question number two. 
What will be the events that signal your return? Question number three. How will we know when the end of the world is to come about? Now, depending on how you interpret the 24th chapter of Matthew will we'll determine what you understand about those three questions because actually the three questions are, are answered in Matthew 24 but in different places. Now, let's take a look at it. Where are we with relationship to the rapture when Jesus Christ will come to take out His church? Look at Matthew 24, 4 through 14. Jesus said, These are some of the signs that will precede my coming rapture. Don't let anyone fool you, for many will come claiming to be the Messiah, will lead many astray. When you hear of wars beginning, this does not signal my return. These must come, but the end is not yet. The nations and kingdoms of the earth will rise against each other, and there will be famines and earthquakes in many places. But all this will only be the beginning of the horrors to come. Then you will be tortured and killed and hated all over the world because you are mine. And many of you shall fall back into sin and betray and hate each other, and many false prophets shall appear and lead many astray. Sin will be rampant everywhere and will cool the love of many. But those enduring to the end shall be saved, and the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it. And finally, the end will come. Jesus said that those of us who are His and who remain before the rapture are going to go through some very perilous times, some very difficult days, some days in which our very faith in God will be tested. And that's the reason that I entitled this message tonight, The Prepared Heart. Because unless by the grace of God our hearts are prepared against that day, the day that I believe with all my heart is coming and soon, we'll find that we shall fall back, that we shall slip away, that we shall become on the shelf outside the will of God, not uh, equipped or able or willing to be used of Him. Those verses refer to, refer to what will be happening on the earth prior to the rapture. Now, starting with verse 15 in Matthew 24 and down through 28 speaks of the tribulation period which will take place after the rapture, after Jesus Christ has come and taken us out. So when you see the horrible things being told about by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, note to the reader, you know what is meant. Then those in Judea must flee into the Judean hills. Those on the porches must not even go inside to pack before they flee. Those in the field should not return to their homes for their clothes and woe to the pregnant women and to those with babies in those days, and pray that your flight will not be in winter or on the Sabbath, for there will be persecution such as the world has never before seen in all its history and will never see again. In fact, unless those days are shortened, all mankind will perish, but they will be shortened for the sake of God's chosen people. I think he's talking there about the Jews. Anyway, the, uh, the Bible indicates the things that will be happening. Now, Matthew 24, starting with 29 and down through 31, speaks of his return in glory. Immediately after the persecution of those days, the sun will be darkened. Remember what we said about the plagues, the trumpets, the seals? The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give light. The stars will be seen to, will seem to fall from the heavens and the powers overshadowing the earth will be convulsed. And then at last, the signal of my coming shall appear in heaven. There will be deep mourning all around the earth and the nations of the world will see me arrive in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Matthew 24, starting with 32 and down through 34, speaks of the fig tree blossoming. This is symbolic of the Jewish nation. Now learn a lesson from the fig tree. When her branch is tender and the leaves begin to sprout, you know that summer is almost here. Just so, when you see all these things beginning to happen, you can know that my return is near even at the door. Then at last this age will come to its close. Matthew 24, 35 through 36 deals with the end of the world. And he says, heaven and earth shall disappear, but my words will remain forever. 
But no one knows the date and hour when the end will come. Not even the angels know, not even God's Son, only the Father knows. Matthew 24, 37 through 42 deals with the rapture itself. The world will be at ease. Banquets and parties, just as it was in Noah's time before the sudden coming of the flood. People wouldn't believe what was going to happen until the flood actually arrived, and then it was too late, it took them all away. So shall my coming be. Two men will be working together in the field, the one will be taking the other left. Two women will be going about their household tasks, the one will be taking the other left. So be prepared, for you don't know what day your Lord is coming. Well, what are the signs that we see today? Knowing what the biblical background is, Knowing something of the world situation, what are the signs which we see today which would indicate to us when he may come again? First, the Jews. Jesus said, when you see the fig tree budding, you know that the time is close at hand. Back in 1948, the fig tree of the Jewish people began to bud in Israel. For the first time since the dispersion, they were gathered together as a nation. After the Six-Day War, for the first time since the dispersion, they had all of Jerusalem in their control, including the old temple site. The teaching of the Word of God is that this generation shall not pass away until all these things be fulfilled. If you can determine what Jesus meant when he said, this generation shall not pass away until these things come to pass, you can know within limits when he's coming again. Entirely possible that the generation spoken of there would be the generation of a man's lifetime. That's true, project a man's lifetime from May of 1948. You may have some idea of when Jesus could return. Then let's look at the world order of government. What's going to be happening before his return? In that realm, we have seen the ten-nation confederacy is going to appear. It will have its headquarters in Rome, have a dictator, eventually become the world dictator, and about halfway through the tribulation, uh, he's going to think out on the Jews, and then uh, all manner of things are going to break loose. Information on the ten-nation confederacy may be found in Daniel 2, the ten toes of the, of the image. In Daniel 7 the beast with ten horns. In Revelation 11, no, 13, the beast with ten crowns. This is the ten-nation confederacy. The Bible says in Daniel 2, verse 4, that many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase before Jesus returns. We know this is true. We have the SST making trips across the Atlantic in record time. Our total of technical knowledge is doubling every 20 years, completely doubling every 20 years. In Matthew 24, 6, it says there will be wars and rumors of wars. There have been 44 wars since World War II, 39 political assassinations, 49 personal revolts, 74 rebellions for independence, and 162 social revolutions, either political, economic, racial, or religious. Matthew 24, 7 says there will be famines. Literally hundreds of thousands of people die every year from starvation. Look at old Cambodia, what's happening there. I think you call it Campuchia, is that right? Man, what a terrible thing is taking place. Somebody recently estimated that during the decade of the 1970s, two and one-half billion people have starved here on earth. They also estimate that by 1985, the world will be gripped by such a famine that there will be no return. Recently, some people who, who study population and famine uh, said that not only will it not improve, but it will increasingly become more difficult to feed the population that rests now on earth. In Matthew 24, 7, the Bible says earthquakes will be increasing. Recently, our government appropriated $220 million for a project to find out why the frequency of earthquakes is increasing in our world. You know, if they'd asked me, I could have saved them $220 million. Or if they just read the Bible. 
Because Jesus said in the last days before His return, the earthquakes will be increasing. Matthew 27, 12, it says that the crime rate will be increasing. We don't need to talk about that. Matthew 24, 37 through 39 says that people will be living it up as they were in the days of Noah. You go back and take a look at the days of Noah and the days when Sodom and Gomorrah were cities and operating and the hallmark of what was happening in these days was moral debauchery, homosexuality, sexual looseness, and sexual fantasies. Further, the Bible says there will be signs in the skies, Luke 21, 25, signs in the moon and the stars and the heavens. And, of course, we see the satellites, men landing on Mars, men landing on the moon, making probes into outer space. Certainly there are signs in the skies tonight. Luke 21, 26 says that men's heart will fail them for fear. In the January 24th issue of Time magazine, entitled, The Worst is Yet to Be, I quote, The furnaces of Pittsburgh are cold. The assembly lines of Detroit are still. In Los Angeles, a few gaunt survivors of the plague desperately till the freeway center strips, backyards, and outlying fields, hoping to raise a subsistence crop. London's offices are dark. Its docks are deserted. In the farmlands of Ukraine, abandoned tractors litter the fields. There is no fuel for them. The waters of the Rhine, the Nile, and Yellow Rivers reek with pollution. That's the opening paragraph. Fantastic? No. Only grim inevitability if we as a society continue in the direction we're going. At least that's the vision conjured up by an elaborate study entitled The Limits of Growth. Its sponsors are no latter-day Jeremiah's, but 70 eminently respected members of the prestigious Club of Rome. But the more industrial output not only demands a heavier drain on natural resources that are scarce even now, but also creates pollution, and pollution ultimately interferes with the growth of both population and food. A man by the name of Meadows and his crew at MIT fed the megacomputer, the largest computer in the world, with an array of data ranging from expert opinion to hard empirical facts. The world's known resources, population growth rates, the instances of pollution connected with nuclear power plants and so forth. The question Meadows had to answer was this. How long can population and industrialization continue to grow on this finite planet? The conclusion, probably by the end of the century, and certainly no longer than 2020, this planet, unless something happens, will no longer be able to sustain the population that is now here. Meadows sums up his conclusions tersely. All growth projections end in collapse. And the Club of Rome is not alone in its concern. Britain's Ecologist magazine devoted 22 pages to a blueprint for survival recently, which also projects disaster and argues for quick action to end exponential growth. The article gains its authority not from computer studies, but from the endorsement of 33 of the United Kingdom's leading and most distinguished scientists, including biologist Sir Julian Huxley, geneticist C.H. Waddington, and naturalist Peter Scott. Listen to what they had to say. Unrestricted industrial and population expansion, they warn, must lead to the breakdown of society and of the life support system, possibly by the end of this century and certainly within the lifetime of our children. Now, the Bible says that in the last days before Christ returns, men's hearts will fail them for fear. It's little wonder if these eminent scientists are anywhere near right. We have quite a right to be concerned about what's ahead of us in these days. It's interesting to note that our particular society and our particular time in world history is filled with despondency and defeatism. We have been called the hopeless generation. People's hearts are failing because of the, the possibility of thermonuclear holocaust. 
the, the population explosion, the, the energy crisis, the ecological problems that, that face us may make our planet inhabitable. And this is exactly what the Bible says. And beyond all that, the monetary system of the Western world is showing cracks and may well fall apart. I didn't read the morning paper. I don't know what gold closed that in Hong Kong. The other day it was over $600 an ounce. Historically, gold has always been a place where scared money runs. They're running out of paper money and into gold and into silver and into commodities, things that are real. I don't know what's happening in your country, but in our country we're losing faith in what we call our dollars. Some people don't even call them dollars anymore. They call them greenies because they're not backed with anything but conversation. No gold, no silver, just conversation. They're just good because our government says they're good. And I think the world bankers are beginning to wonder the reason our dollar is falling on the market. I don't know what's backing up, backing up yours. But what about the churches? What's going to happen to the church? Have you had about enough of this? You think you can take it on to the end? Well, I'll tell you, there is a bright point. And uh, the bright point is that Jesus is coming again. You know, let's try and keep that as a backdrop of what we're saying. Not only is Jesus coming again, but God is still sovereign. You know, he's still in control. God is in control and Jesus is coming again. What about the churches? What's going to be happening? Happening? Matthew 24, 11, it says there will be false prophets arising in the church. And today in our land, many pulpits are filled with preachers who preach nothing more than social involvement. They do not preach a heart relationship with the living God and the person of Jesus Christ. They do not tell men that they must be born again, born from above, saved, redeemed, regenerated. Instead, they say that man is basically good. But what he needs is just to clean up his life a little bit, do good, help other people, and God is going to accept him. That's a great heresy. That's false prophecy. That's a lie. It's just not so. The Bible says that that kind of thing will be being preached before Jesus comes again. The line between the true church and the religious people is being more clearly drawn today. We're finding that those who are in fact a part of the family of God are standing out uh, apart from those who are simply uh, the recipients of churchianity. Well, you say that may be true. But things like this have happened down through history. Yeah, that's true. But, beloved, listen to this. Whenever a woman is pregnant, the way that you tell how close the delivery is is by the frequency and intensity of the labor pain. That's how they know. Now, these signs we've been, talk been talking about tonight, if you want to know how close the times are to Jesus' return to the rapture, you watch the intensity and the frequency of the signs that we've been talking about tonight. Because as the frequency of the fulfillment begins to happen, as the intensity of what God said would be happening in the last days begins to grow, you can know that the coming of Christ is near. But let me encourage you. In Luke 21, verses 27 and 28, it says this, Then the people of the earth shall see me, the Messiah, coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So when all these things begin to happen, stand straight and look up. For your salvation is near. Praise God. Those of us who know him should be looking forward with anticipation to his return. I think that's what it means in Titus 2, 12 and 13 when it says, Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world, looking for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the blessed hope 
And we should be looking day by day for His return. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. As we were praying before this meeting, someone said it may be that we'll be lifted off. We'll make the lift off tonight. And I said, praise God, I hope it'll be while I'm preaching, we'll all go together. Man, what a blessing. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. He could come tonight, you know. He could come tonight. Mm. We can look forward to that. But you know, those people who don't know Jesus have nothing to look forward to but the horrors of the tribulation period. And at the end of that, the great white throne judgment and the eternity spent separated from God in what the Bible calls the lake of fire, which it also says is the second, second death. The Bible says, And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death. What a horrible thing to look forward to. Why have we spent this evening on this particular subject? Let me give you four reasons. First of all, to let us know that the Bible is relevant to the days in which we live. If you want to know what's really happening, if you want to know the meaning of world events as you read them, read your Bible. God is sovereign and what God has said is going to happen is going to happen. Regardless of how we look at it, regardless of what we think about it, regardless of what the nations of the world decide to do about it, the facts are that what God has said is going to happen is going to happen. Secondly, to comfort and encourage all of you, all of us who trust in Christ. Third, to encourage each of us to live a holy and godly life and to be prepared for the perilous days which are ahead. In 2 Peter 3.11 it says, And so since everything around us is going to melt away, seeing that this is going to happen, what holy, godly lives should we be living? Fourth, knowing the terrors of the tribulation, the uncertainty of the time of Christ's return, and the fact that those who are here and remain after He comes for us will have no second chance to motivate us to share Christ with our friends, our families, our neighbors, our business associates. So let me encourage you, beloved, look up. Jesus is coming again. Don't base your life figuring that you're going to live on this earth from now on because you're not. That while you're here, live a holy and godly life that will be explainable only in the terms of God and when you have that quality of life. Not only will you, will you not have to go out and look for ministry, you'll have to drive it away from the door because people will be the path to your door wanting to know what it is that makes your life different. Why do you not respond like everybody else? How can you face these things differently than we can? Tell us about what it is that makes you different. We're responsible for the depth of our lives, but God is responsible for the breadth of our ministries. And these last days, as we take our roots deeper down into Him, as it says in Isaiah 37, 31, we'll take our roots downward, and then by the grace of God we'll bear fruit upwards. Know what you believe about Jesus. Be able to articulate it in order that uh, friends and neighbors and family won't have to face the tribulation period without Christ and without hope, shall we pray.